I'm Kate Daniels. Here at the middle of summer, we always look forward to summer festivals, one of the big ones being Seafair. This morning, we're going to meet David Williams with a big history with this event, more specifically with the hydroplanes. David is the executive director of the Hydroplane and Raceboat Museum in Kent, and he brings a wealth of that knowledge with him this morning. With his experiences with the hydros, David naturally has known the people closely associated with these vehicles. One of them, Mira Slovak, is the focus of David's new book, A Race to Freedom, The Mira Slovak Story. David's here to share some of that story, which is vastly larger than just these boats. But let's meet David and learn all about that. David Williams, good morning. How great to have you here with us this morning. Well, good morning, Kate. It's wonderful to be here. And are you, your blood, is it beginning to percolate a bit thinking about hydroplane races? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's sort of like the week before Christmas and you're busy getting all the presents bought and presents wrapped. That's the way boat racers are the week before Seafair. We've got so much work to do, but there's a big payoff coming in about a week. Yes. Oh, so I think the city, too. Certainly, you know, major parts of the city are all excited about it because Seafair is a big thing here. It is a big deal. And it's maybe not the big deal it was back in the 50s or 60s, but it sure is a very unique, very important part of our community. Yes. Summertime and parades and uh, actually all the Blue Angels going to be here again? They will. Yes. Yes. So there's that. And that all really ties in so perfectly, doesn't it, with the hydroplanes? It does. It does. And it's a funny story. The Blue Angels started the, the very first year that we had races here in 1951. The Blue Angels were sort of the in-between racing entertainment. It was sort of an afterthought. You know, there's a Heat 1 and a Heat 2, and in between them we'll have, uh, hey, why don't we have an air show? And now it's growing that the air show is uh, as big or bigger an attraction uh, as the boat races. Whatever it takes, though. Whatever it takes. People all pour in. Well, it's it's such a unique summer festival, and, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but every major city has a football team, has a baseball team, um, has a soccer team. But hydroplane racing is really unique to Seattle and a couple other cities, Detroit, San Diego. Um, But it's not something you find everywhere. And I personally think you should embrace those things that are unique to your region. We don't have to be like Los Angeles or, uh, you know, New York or other places. We can be ourselves. We can have our own thing. Absolutely. We stand out uniquely. Exactly. And so, as you're saying, the 50s and the 60s, that was kind of the the birth of the hydroplanes. It it sure was. The first race we had here in Seattle was 1951. Um, And our big race back then was something called the Gold Cup. Neat thing about the Gold Cup is the winner of the race got to host the next year's race. That would be sort of like if you won the Super Bowl, you would get to host the Super Bowl the next year. Well, Seattle was lucky enough to win it five years in a row. Um, so we had the race here for five years, and oh, by the time there was a fifth race, people were pretty hooked on the sport. <laughs> Call that fate, I suppose. I think it was. I think it was fate. And and back then, we had some really cool people involved in the sport. Um, Bill Boeing, and we'll talk more about Bill Boeing. Uh, Henry and Edgar Kaiser, you know, Kaiser Steel, Kaiser Aluminum. Uh, Sam DuPont, DuPont Chemical, Horace Dodge. I mean, these are big names. Um, even now, they're big names. But boy, back in 1951 in Seattle, when you had you know, those type of people show up, it just knocked folks' socks off. It's <laughs> so exciting. Yeah. Now, as we're talking about it, of course, it's tying into the fact that, yes, we're coming up on Seafair Weekend and the hydroplane races. 
But we should also mention that this history lives on throughout the entire year, correct? It does. Um, I am director of the Hydroplane and Raceboat Museum. At the museum, we restore a lot of these old boats. And we don't just restore them, but we take them out and we run them. Uh, We'll be running four boats at Seafair next week. We'll have four of the old vintage boats out. And that led to sort of an interesting train of thought in that we did such a good job restoring the boats and bringing them back to life. But we can't really do much about the people. I wish we could. I wish I could find a way to restore people back to the way they were when they were young. But to preserve the history of some of the people, we've begun to write books. And I've written a book that I think really captures uh, seafare and captures hydroplane history and captures the whole 1950s. It's a book called A Race to Freedom, the Myra Slovak story. And it is fascinating. (laughs) Of course, it's history, but it just jumps off the page, literally, doesn't it? Well, thank you. I think it does. But I'm a little little biased since I I wrote it. I'm thrilled that you've enjoyed it. You know, Myra was uh, more than a a boat racer. He was a Cold War hero. He worked for the CIA. He has an amazing, amazing story. Um, And I have found um, there are a lot of people who've read the book who said who were Hydro fans. But they've approached me and said, you know what? I really enjoyed the the Cold War CIA stuff more than the boat racing. (laughs) Uh, Of course, that was all secret back when he was racing. He couldn't talk about his CIA career then. Sure. But it all has a way of tying in together his history, of course, his passion then, well, for speed, things to do with flight, right? Sure, sure. And and that's one of the things um, that made hydroplane racing so popular in Seattle, the way that things tie together. Seattle, before the airplane business, was a seaport. We had, you know, we were boating people. We had boats, um, and then uh, we had airplanes with Boeing And then a hydroplane is half airplane and half boat. And it really appealed to the people of Seattle in ways that it didn't appeal in other parts of the country. It was just hugely popular here. And yet, I'm sort of remembering from hearing you speak about this uh, previously, was it Michigan that was kind of big into it? Yeah. um, The the sport of unlimited hydroplane racing started in 1904, actually, in New York, New York, on the Hudson River. And I I mentioned earlier that the winner of the race would get to choose where the next race was. For a number of years, the race stayed on the East Coast in in New York and moving between upstate New York and uh, some other eastern cities. But then some folks in Detroit began to race. And Detroit, we all know of Detroit as the motor city. So Detroit's answer to going fast was more horsepower, just put in more Bigger engines, more engines. Uh, some of the boats in Detroit, if one engine wasn't enough, they'd go to two. If two wasn't enough, they would go to four. And that was the way the sport w- uh, pretty much progressed until the 19, well, until World War II, and then the, the sport took a hiatus during the war. Coming back in the 40s, uh, a fellow out here in Seattle named Ted Jones, working with uh, a car dealer named Stan Sayers and a boat builder named Anchor Jensen, built a boat that was very similar to an airplane, using the Seattle knowledge from airplanes, very aerodynamic, very lightweight, not a whole lot of horsepower, uh, but was called the Slow Motion 4. And it went back to Detroit, and it kicked their behinds. It lapped all of those big old heavy Detroit boats with lots of horsepower. So then we developed this marvelous community rivalry. A bit of it was staged because some of the drivers knew to sell tickets, you got to have a little bit of conflict and have conflict. Let's Let's pretend like we don't like each other. So there was this rivalry, some real, some staged. 
but it went on from about 1950 clear into uh, the early 70s. And if you think, if you're a sports fan in Seattle and you think of you know, some of those uh, great college football rivalries between U of W or WSU or pro ball between uh, the Seahawks and the 49ers, that type of rivalry really gets people pumped up. So the Seattle-Detroit rivalry, that was a big deal back in the 50s and 60s. Oh, that's that's so incredible. And so thinking about these races mm-hmm. and, and the speed, you yourself have raced, still race? Uh, um, sort of. Uh, I did race. Um, I drive exhibitions now. Um, all of the boats that we've restored at the museum do run, and we stage races across the country. And uh, next week, I'll be running, actually, I'll be running a boat called the, the Miss Wahoo, um, which is Myra Slovak's old boat. Chip Hanauer, who is a very famous racer from Seattle, he's driving one of our boats. Um, Ken Muscatel and Mike Hansen, who are also retired hydroplane racers, will be driving. So uh, a bunch of old retired guys driving some, <laughs> some renewed boats, but it's a lot of fun. Those guys are real experienced. And we put on a heck of a show. It, uh, very often we'll come in and, and people, interviewers or reporters will say, come on, was that really staged or were you actually racing? I can't really answer. Well, that. yes, you'll have to just <laughs> you'll come, have and to come and see and, watch. and make That's up your right. own mind. Right? That's absolutely right. <laughs> so how fast, what's the speed of the boat when, you, when you're driving When it? we're doing the exhibitions? Yes. Well, we try and run at about three quarters throttle. Um, so if a boat would normally, one of the old boats from the 60s that would be comfortable at 160, you know, we'll run 120, 130. Fast enough that it's, that's plenty dangerous and pretty exciting and makes a lot of noise and throws a lot of water around. But not so fast that we really are running the risk of getting someone hurt. Yeah. Uh, that's really uncomfortable speed for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll have to give you a ride someday and show you how much fun it can be. <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll consider it. All right. You I'll consider it. it. You consider it. Take it under advisement as to yes. whether I could do this. But I know it's thrilling, and there are people who just, you know, live for speed. Yes. Uh, obviously, you do. I I don't know if I would say I live for speed. I, en- I enjoy it, um, but there are so many other aspects of the sport that I enjoy. The, the boats themselves are meticulously restored and prepared and are really beautiful machines. Um, and there's something fun about, I'm sure you know people who are woodworkers, who are artists, mm-hmm. who enjoy making something beautiful. Yes. But to make something beautiful and then make it go 160 miles an hour with you in it, that's quite a challenge. And, and it's very fulfilling and rewarding. Um, something else that people who haven't been involved in motorsports uh, may not be aware of is it really is a team. And there are, for every boat you see on the water, maybe 10 or 12 folks Sometimes guys, sometimes guys and gals who are, you know, behind the scenes making it work. And it's really rewarding to be part of something that's a, a group effort um, to, to make something beautiful and make something fast. And um, so yeah, there, there are a lot of reasons to race, not just because you're in love with speed. Yeah. Now, as we talk about these restored boats yes. and we've mentioned there is the museum, let's actually specifically say where it is okay. and how people can find it. The museum is in Kent. We are, our address is 5917 South 196th Street, but you don't have to remember that. You do have to remember our website address, which is thunderboats.org. You can go there and see our schedule, see what our hours are, see what the the costs of admission are. Um, And if you grew up in Seattle, or even if you didn't grow up in Seattle, there's a lot of history there. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yes, actually on both accounts. Uh, anyone who is originally from this area would, I think, embrace that history and, and love to come and ooh and all over it uh, and bring friends and visitors, right? I've, yes, I've, I've been running the museum for 25 years, and there's a really unique thing. When we started the museum, um, I developed all these wonderful stories that I wanted to tell when people came in, and we still have them. But more often, Seattle natives want to tell me their stories. Mm -hmm. They want to come in and say, oh, you know, when I was a kid, I got to sit in this boat, or I met Bill Muncie, or I was there the day that uh, the Slomo 5 uh, flipped over, or I was there the day that uh, the Boeing Dash 80 did its barrel roll. And people love telling me their stories. Um, and, and very often it will be uh, maybe a grandparent with a grandchild, and the, the, the grandparents just love to, to tell me their story in front of their kids or their grandkids. It's, 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 that's a really fun thing yes. to, to kind of inspire those memories. And it has to be thrilling for a family to, you, group to come together, the different generations. One thing that uh, a lot of people that are maybe new to the region, they look at motorsports and they go, oh, you know, that's probably... That's a guy thing, and maybe it's a certain age group. Um, during the, the day when this sport was so popular, it was a family event, and there were every bit as many women coming to the races and cheering on the races, and there were grandma and grandpa down to, um, I've, I've had people come in and say, I'm 55 years old, and I've never missed a race. My parents took me in a bassinet when I was six months old, and I've been to every race since. So it, it really does have, it is much more of a community thing that crosses, uh, it crosses age groups, it crosses ethnic groups. Did you know that one of the great guitar gods of rock and roll history, Jimi Hendrix, was a big Hydro fan? Oh. In fact, if you go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, back in Ohio, he has on display there in all of the Hendrix memorabilia two little uh, hand-colored drawings he did as a child in 1958 of a boat called the Hawaii Kai and a boat called the Thriftway Two. So it really did cross ethnic bounds. It crossed age bounds. It was the sport for Seattle. Yes. So very exciting. And and, and this is a time to really get out there and, and kind of get up close and personal. It, it is. Um, because uh, we're running the, the vintage boats and we're not quite as serious about racing, we're not trying to go fast, um, we're able to uh, give people a much closer view. If you, if you can make it into the pits, we can usually bring you over, show you the boat. Sometimes we can get you in the boat so you can sit in it and feel like it. Certainly we do that at the museum every day. We put people in the boats every day. Um, and uh, not, not to be too commercial here, but to go back to the, the book, which does, I think, a wonderful job of capturing that kind of Seattle innocence of the 1950s. Um, not only does it talk a lot about uh, the Cold War and the Iron Curtain in, in, um, in Central Europe where Myra, uh, Myra was born in Czechoslovakia, and he uh, was the first really famous hijacker. He hijacked a, a communist airliner, flew over the Iron Curtain, flew to West Germany um, as, a, uh, as a, a refugee, uh, requested asylum, was granted asylum, and happened to bring with him a lot of inside intel on the communist air force. Uh, so the CIA fell in love with him, um, and he spent several years with the CIA. And as a reward for all of his hard work, the CIA got him, but his 
probably the coolest job I could think of if you were a pilot, being the personal pilot for Bill Boeing. <laughs> um, so, uh, so Myra came to Seattle w- without much English skill, um, but certainly with a passion for airplanes. Um, and he and Bill became tremendous friends. Um, that's a really nice relationship. Um, and um, and when Bill decided to race hydroplanes, he offered the the job driving the hydroplane to Myra. Um, and he be- can you imagine? <laughs> there's a there's a really cute story. Um, they had flown up to Canada for a business meeting, um, and in the business meeting, one of the Canadians had asked Bill about his plans to race a hydroplane. And Myra really didn't know what a hydroplane was, and Bill explained hydroplanes. And they were flying back, and they were uh, in in Bill's Aero Commander flying over the Canadian border. Uh, and Bill says, so Myra, have you ever been in a boat? And Myra says, well, yeah, I know. I've been in boats before. Well, can you drive a boat? Yeah, I can steer a boat. Well, would you like to drive my boat? Well, of course. <laughs> sure. All right, so you're hired. Well, what Myra didn't tell Bill is the only boat he had ever been in was a kayak <laughs> that was about eight feet long and went seven miles an hour. But he got the job driving a 160-mile-an-hour <laughs> race boat that was 30 feet long and, and had 3,000 horsepower. But he acquitted himself very well. He won uh, several national championships, some, some great races, and, and became not just a celebrity in Seattle, but a celebrity across the country. Um, there are a number, at, at that time in the, the late 50s, a number of stories in Life magazine. Um, it didn't hurt that we kind of handsome, and a lot of the women thought he was really, really attractive. So he he was in Time Magazine and Newsweek and Life Magazine. Um, Back then, there was a a television show called This Is Your Life with Ralph Edwards. Um, They did a special on him. So he was was not just a Seattle celebrity. He was a national celebrity. And with the book, A Race to Freedom, the Mira Slovak story, it just ties so much of this together, and I, it's really such a compelling read, and I think anyone would really be qu- quite mesmerized, right? <laughs> well, well, thank you, and that's something I tried to do. Um, I didn't want to write, and, and Myra, when he asked me to write the book, he said, don't write a hydroplane story. There's so much more to life than hydroplane racing. In, in fact, a great deal of the book deals with his, his flying. Um, it... It probably would appeal to anybody who likes history, to anyone who's interested in the Cold War and what life. Um, Well, first of all, Czechoslovakia was taken over by the Nazis, and and Myra lived under Nazi occupation throughout the entire war. Then the Russian liberation and the the communist government and then the escape um, and then came to America and um, flew for Bill Boeing, raced hydroplanes. But then he moved on to other things after hydroplanes. He raced airplanes. Um, and he became an airline captain, um, and he became a very well-known and well-respected public speaker, um, speaking about the dangers of communism, uh, about his personal experience. He had some horrific experiences under the Russian occupation where friends of his were um, arrested in the middle of the night and disappeared, and where his his family's farm was taken away from him, and, and all sorts of things that he gives you a real good firsthand experience of what life in the 1950s in the Soviet Union, in the Soviet bloc, was like. Um, and I feel that 
in this way, it's it's such a living history by seeing it through the eyes of someone who's experienced it that way, who was able to get himself out of that country, to really experience that uh, teaches well, us a lot. It 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 does. And um, Myra passed away while we were working on the book, mm-hmm. um, very early in the process. But he gave me instructions. He said, I don't want it to be a dull, dry, informative, journalistic book. Many nonfiction books are that way. Mm-hmm. But he said, this my life was so exciting. You need to write this like a bestseller. So it does have that uh, that sort of bestseller feel to it. I, I did have a reviewer question me and say, this sounds more like a novel than a biography. Are you sure this is all true? And I guarantee you absolutely every word is true. Um, I There's a huge list of sources in the back of the book. And I, um, I tried to hold the book to journalistic standards where even if Myra said something, I still had to get a second source. I wanted two sources for everything that's in there. Um, so I would uh, interview Byra, then interview Bill Boeing, and when the stories matched, I would use that matched story. If the stories didn't match, I couldn't use it. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it. It's a sad thing to me. Um, I believe I interviewed 45 or 50 different people uh, in writing the book. And since um, since the project started, Almost 30% of those people have passed away. Mm. Um, and it's it's sort of, um, we've talked about the, the greatest generation, you know, that sort of World War II generation. Myra was, was the tail end of that greatest generation. He was born in 1929. Uh, his family uh, lived in Czechoslovakia when they were overrun by the Nazis. His family actually hid two Jewish families in their basement during the, the Nazi occupation. Um, and... Uh, and so he's had the tail end of that greatest generation. And those stories are amazing stories. We get all wrapped up in, in contemporary politics and current events. But when you look at what our parents and grandparents lived through in the 20s and 30s and the 40s, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, so I was very blessed, very lucky to be able to capture this story. Um, you know, Bill Boeing passed away while I was writing it. Myra passed away while I was writing it. Uh, Another character, Chuck Lyford, passed away while I was writing it. A number of the people in the book passed away while I was writing it. And I just felt um, so devastated by the losses, but so grateful that I'd been able to get their stories, to interview them um, before it was too late. And we have the opportunity to hear those stories. They're basically firsthand accounts because you spoke directly to the source. I, I, I did. Thank you very much for... Yeah. For acknowledging that. That's very nice. It's well, it's important. And I think for us, there um because it is written you know, with these thrilling details, maybe doesn't feel well, as this one uh person was critiquing it saying, Oh, it just sounds like a novel. But when someone's living this vibrant life there's what can yeah, you do? Truth the truth doesn't have to be dull. That's <laughs> I didn't yes. want to go through and say, "All right, this is too exciting. We need to need to tone it down." It, it's a, I I'm thrilled to hear you say that that you in, enjoyed it. Absolutely. And uh, and I um, just I I whenever I meet someone who's read the book, it makes me all warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> yes. Well, we and we want more people we do to read the book for for any number of reasons uh because it is Seattle history it's a way to to make that connection but there's 
it's life. It's global because of what we've just sure. mentioned. I, I think there is a bigger story than just Seattle in it. But the, the bigger story, Myra was someone who did he didn't believe in compromise, um, certainly not to compromise his principles. He would not live under the, the, the communist dictatorships. Um, and he felt that freedom. I, I asked him once, I said, um, are, are you happy that you defected? Are you, you happy that you came to America? And he said, you know, David, it was never about happiness. Think of it this way. If you're in a room and someone starts pulling the air out of the room, um, you don't decide, gee, I would be happier with more air. You're suddenly choking and you need to breathe and you will break the windows or kick down the doors or do whatever you need to do to get more air. Well, for me, freedom is air. And when the communists started taking away our freedom, I felt like I was choking. And I knew that there was freedom in America. So I had to come to America the same way you would have to break a window to get out of a room that was full of smoke and you couldn't breathe. Um, and, you know, we, we do, I think, are so blessed with the freedoms that we have that we kind of lose track of how mm. fragile they are and how uh, carefully we must protect that freedom. Um, and uh, it, it's, um, it's interesting that he, as an immigrant, uh, and there's so much debate about immigrants right now, mm. but he, as an immigrant, understood the value of freedom much more so than some of us who are born here and have it, take it for granted. Yes. It's like anything in life. If you're given it, you don't value it the same way that you do if you have to fight for it and earn it. And so the things that that you and I pretty much take for granted, he had to fight for. He had to give up his mother and his father and his family and his fiance and all these things to come to America. And once he was here, not only did he value the freedom, but he did a lot with his life. He wasn't one of those people who just kind of, you know, watched life go by. He raced boats. He raced airplanes. He, you know, flew gliders. He flew stunt planes. He, he did darn near everything. He followed his heart, his passion, because planes were something that, as a child, he had embraced. It, it was his first real love, and probably his the major love of his life were airplanes. Two quick things. At one point, his mother lamented, um, I don't know if you'll ever get married. And he said, but Mom, I am married. I'm married to flying. Um, and the other thing, and he, he found this to be very almost ironic, as a pilot, he flew 38,500 hours as a pilot. As a boat racer, he probably only raced two or 300 hours. So a tiny, tiny fraction of his life was spent in hydroplanes. A huge portion of his life was spent in airplanes. But the thing that people always remembered him for, the thing that people come up and ask for autographs for, was the boat racing, because that was just such a big deal here and so dramatic and so exciting. And I feel, as you've shared this story, and really, David, it's... So incredible. You know, you you are definitely a very talented and skilled writer. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. But to bring this story to life for us and, you know, the things that you've mentioned, not, well, probably one of the more important things is how Myra spoke about freedom is something for us to really understand and, and read about that maybe we will then embrace it and live it more fully in our own lives. I I. I think so, and I and I hope that people that are listening um, don't feel, and in this particular time, um, that that one particular 
ideology or one party or one philosophy has a um, has a monopoly on patriotism and freedom. That's for all of us. That's not just for red or just for blue. It's for all of us. And Myra certainly believed that freedom was for all Americans. So get your own copy of <laughs> A Race to Freedom. Of course, it's available through the I, website. It's, it's at our website. It's at Amazon.com. It's at Target. Uh, Target.com. I'm To be honest, they're having trouble keeping it in the brick-and-mortar stores. Uh, I do Good. know Barnes & Noble has it sometimes, but they've sold out a couple of stores uh, Target should be getting them. Barnes and Noble should be getting them. I, I have in two weeks a reading at um, Third Place Books in Seward Park. That's on August eighth. If you want to come there, meet me, get it signed in person. That would be. I would love to do that. Uh, yes. um, and if you can't, or if you're out of, you know, out of range from Third Place Books, then Amazon or Target or, or one of those online or the Hydro Museum store. I can. If you buy it through the museum store, I can guarantee it'll be autographed. There's a great invitation to come down <laughs> to the museum. Absolutely. You know, just so many good reasons to do that. Well, there's so many more great stories, but, you know, that clock keeps dictating. Time to stop, time to stop. But uh, I am so grateful that you've stopped in and we've had a great conversation, I feel, David. Well, I've enjoyed this. Thank you very much for inviting me, and I'll come back anytime. Well, let's do that for sure. All right. Thank you, Kate.